Welcome to the Austin Institute's podcast, What We Can't Not Talk About. So basically, this has adopted what I think is a default masculine bias because it's imposed an expectation on women that in order to be fully functioning members of society, they need to function as much like men as possible. So women's fertility is a threat to women's flourishing. Like That's basically what our culture says. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to another episode of What We Can't Not Talk About, the podcast of the Austin Institute for the Study of Family and Culture. Today, we will be discussing a fundamental topic, our gender or sexual nature, our nature as male and female. Fundamental topic for sure, but in one where, you know, contours, definitions were straightforward for centuries, millennia maybe but that now are extremely debated and extremely controversial. And to do this, we have the fortune, the honor, and I'd say the pleasure uh, of having with us the writer and Notre Dame professor, Dr. Abigail Favale. Welcome, Abigail, and thank you for sharing some of your precious time with us. Yeah, I'm happy to be here. I said writer, and you are the author of more than one book, and yes. I, would not, I would not be surprised if you were already working on the third one. But the one that I would like to discuss with you today is Genesis of Gender, a Christian mm -hmm. theory, which I think you published last year, right? Yes, last summer. Mm -hmm. It was only 2022, but a lot has been already said and written about your book. I know that on my end, it's been highly appreciated. This book has been at the center of our Young Professionals Reading Group for the past few months. That's great. And I must say it's been the source of some of the most interesting conversations that we've had in that group. Wow, that's great. I love that. Yeah, it's been it's been interesting. It's been also refreshing to hear how both men and women related to most of the things you say. And also mm. I want to, you know, plugging for the young professionals that are listening that they can already register for our next books in the fall. Still, the book is not determined, but it's always a great one. And also we often have the honor of having the author speak to the young professionals directly, as you will be doing in November when you're going to be coming as a guest here in Austin with a, a talk for the Salem Center and more about this will be online on our website very soon. But now let's talk about the topic of today, your book, gender, sexuality, all the things that we can't not talk about, but it looks like nobody wants to talk about them today, except for you and I. <laughs> So before we go deeper and talk about gender in particular, would you mind telling us something more about you, about your background, uh, your scholarship? Sure. Yeah. So my academic background is in feminist literary criticism, women's writing and gender theory. And I, in general, I kind of grew up evangelical Protestant, then in college, started studying philosophy, especially feminist philosophy, um, and became very invested in that discussion. And then about nine years ago, I became Catholic, which very much shifted the focus of my work, which has always been about women and gender, but is now often engaging Catholic theology as well. So that's kind of a really quick trajectory. I don't know if you want me to give any more information. I'm happy to dive into <laughs> one of those chapters of that journey. I mean, one thing that I would like to ask you is why even did you start? being interested in gender studies. Like, can you point to what was the reason for that? I don't know. This is something I actually ask myself 
or people ask me often, like, how are, why are you working on this? It sounds so stressful. And sometimes it is stressful, but I'm just fascinated by it. I am really fascinated by it. I would say that a big piece of it is that growing up as um, in kind of a conservative evangelical environment and having certain traits that didn't seem to kind of fit the mold of what femininity is supposed to look like, that put me on a quest for an understanding of womanhood that I could relate to and connect with. And that search really kind of escalated, I think, in college, you know, because that's when you're really wrestling with who am I? What am I made for? What's my purpose in life? Right. And for me, that was very much bound up in what, you know, the fact that I'm a woman, what does that mean? So that's, that's just been something I've been longing for, I guess. And I thought I would find it in more secular feminist theory, but then I ended up finding it in actually the Catholic tradition. Shockingly, I wouldn't have predicted that. (laughs) You're preaching to the choir here, but what exactly, if I may ask, was not fitting the mold? Yeah. So I often found myself in situations where I would be the only girl around boys, athletic and competitive when I was younger. I was the only girl on our high school soccer team. I felt more comfortable around men, which is funny, right? That's not the stereotype. Again, preaching to the choir here. You know, there's some, I'm, I guess I have kind of a fiery personality. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, there are, there are many traits that I have that are typically thought of as feminine as well. You know, I'm an emotional person. I'm sensitive. I'm interested in people, right? All of these things. But I think the the vision of gender that I was given in an evangelical context was so polarized, right? It's almost like this, here's the list of, of virtues that men are supposed to have. And here's the list of virtues that women are supposed to have. And there isn't supposed to be this crossover, right? And also, I would say that in the particular kind of culture I grew up in, women's voices and stories just weren't valued that much, right? So I grew up in a tradition where women were always behind the scenes, but they they didn't preach. They didn't teach anyone older than 12. There weren't leadership roles for them. No one preached about them, right? I mean, I never heard a sermon preached about a woman my entire childhood, which is like amazing to me now as a Catholic, like thinking how bizarre that would be, you know, especially this week, right? We had all these readings about like Mary and Elizabeth and Joan of Arc's feast day was, you know, so there's so there's women all over the place in in Catholicism, which is actually what really attracted me to it initially, even though Catholicism has the stereotype of being this. And in some ways it is patriarchal in the sense that it has a male priesthood. Right. People often just look at the male priesthood and assume that, oh, it's just this male dominated space. But walk into any Catholic church and tell me that's a male dominated space. Right. You'll see women's bodies everywhere. You'll see feminine forms everywhere. I was just actually in Washington, D.C. at the Basilica, the National Shrine of the Immaculate Conception. And there's this wonderful crypt level. And behind the altar in the crypt church, there are these two like semicircle wings that have all the female, like little shrines to all the female martyrs of the church. And then these like prayers to Mary. I mean, it's incredible to be in, I I was in there and I just was feeling this, like, I can't believe I'm part of this tradition that treasures women so much, you know, and I want to, and I felt the sense of belonging. Right. So I did not have that growing up. Right. And I really, I was hungry for that. Right. For women who were complex human beings, whose stories and voices mattered and whose um, stories I could connect to and see myself becoming in some way. 
And do you think I, I said, you know, I know the answer of most of the questions because I read your book. I tried to ask the ones that I also, you know, still I'm curious about, but I want to give our audience uh, an idea. But so would you say that in today's world, the girls that are in college are in a better place than you were? Like, do are they growing up in a culture that values their being a woman? No, it's worse. I mean, that's what's crazy. <laughs> that's why I'm like, what's happening? Yeah. There's there's an interesting turn that I I wouldn't have seen happening, um, which you know the debates about what it even means to be a woman, right? And and thinking of woman as kind of this, basically this like th this kind of empty space that anyone can kind of step into and claim, right? Like that's what it means to be a woman now. So yeah, I think that the debates around that have shifted. In fact, I think it's that that's. I mean, I'm kind of jumping around my story here, but like after I became Catholic, I was sort of initially ambivalent about the term feminism because for so long, feminism had kind of been my religion. And I was like, oh, like, how does this work? Can I incorporate feminism into my Catholic worldview somehow? And I was wrestling with that. And, and I've eventually come around to, yes, the question, the answer to that question is yes, absolutely. But for me, what really, I think, awakened in me, like the need to have some kind of movement that's centered on the dignity of women is the fact that that dignity is being so contested in our time, right? So I now live in this bizarre cultural moment where there's a ferocious cultural debate happening about what it means to be a woman, like in the literal sense. Like I was kind of talking more about ideals and norms, but growing up, you know, everyone, like it was taken for granted by everyone that women were female, right? But then what? the ideals around womanhood or the expectations around womanhood, you know, those were the things I was wrestling with. But now I live in a moment where it's actually that very ground of what the word even means is, is now a, a, a scene of, of intense debate. And so it becomes actually even more difficult to get to that higher level when you don't even have the ground of what the word means in the first place, right? So how can we even have meaningful conversations about what are the kind of ideals or expectations or callings or gifts of women when right now we can't even agree on what the term even means. Yeah. And you do have a beautiful part in your book about the biology of it. And like, and you, and you explain how this idea that sex or gender or spectrum is a spectrum, it's just misplaced. But before we get there, I would like to read something you write towards the end of your book, which I think speaks to what we're saying. Is it easier to be a woman today or not? Page 172 for those who have already bought the copy, those who will buy it. I'm quoting. The idea that women exist primarily for the pleasure of men has never been more so explicit, more omnipresent than in our ostensibly feminist age. Some feminists have even embraced this, singing the sex-positive praises of pornography and prostitution as somehow liberating for women. These are your words. Uh, how did we get there? That's a great question. So I'll say just kind of as a preface about what we have been talking about. I think my view now is that there will always be ways in which a particular historical or cultural moment is not affirming the dignity of women. I had this conversation with a friend on our Lady Bird walk yesterday, right? <laughs> yeah. There is a way yes. in which, okay, great. We. So I don't have this like naive kind of romanticism about like, oh, the past. it was so great. And, you know, but in my childhood, like there, there were kind of women's dignity was under question in one way. Now it's under question in a different way, right? I think there are times when this would be worse or a little bit better, but it's always something we have to attend to, right? And I think that's a feature of the fall, honestly. So 
because of the influence of sin that corrupts relationships and especially the relationship between the sexes, we will always have to attend and tend to that rupture, which tends toward domination and conflict. Anyway, so that's kind of a preface, but how did we get here to this this particular moment? One huge factor that I talk about in the book is actually the influence of contraception on our culture um, and the shift from our culture becoming a society in which contraception wasn't acceptable, socially acceptable or widely used to becoming a contraceptive culture where it became not just like an acceptable option, but pretty much like the default path for most women. In my kind of feminist heyday, I just thought that was great. I was like, you know, I remember actually saying, like to quote my former self, that contraception is like the linchpin of women's freedom. Like that's what that, so that's what I thought in my 20s, right? And so here's why I think I was wrong. Because even though there were some benefits brought by contraception, its influence writ large on our entire culture and the way we now think about sexuality and womanhood and what women are for has really led to, again, this very denigrating and hypersexualized vision of a woman's value. Okay. So in embracing contraception, I think our cultural imagination has been reshaped. So now we think about sex in terms of like, you know, I'm talking about sex as an activity right here, right now, not as male, female, but we think about sex as something that's recreational that's low stakes, that doesn't really matter. It's just this kind of like blip of pleasure, basically. That's what it's for. Um, But sex is still the act when a man and a woman do that, that the only act that can create another human being. And when that happens, guess what? It's women who are then left with the responsibility of that human life and a man can kind of walk away. So now there's this like generalized expectation that a woman's fertility is like her problem to deal with and that she needs to kind of make herself sterile. And if a baby sneaks in through that, then it's her fault and it's her burden, right? And if she can't raise the kid, then she can just get an abortion, easy peasy, right? So basically this has adopted what I think is a default masculine bias because it's imposed an expectation on women that in order to be fully functioning members of society, they need to function as much like men as possible. So women's fertility is a threat to women's flourishing. Like that's basically what our culture says. And so then we we put girls on the pill, you know, mm-hmm. at a young age and we kind of set them at war with their bodies in order to be free. And that's, I would say the opposite of what a truly liberating understanding of what womanhood would be, which would actually see her procreative potential as a gift and something to be stewarded and something that should actually shape society rather than something to be seen as a threat. You've said a a series of things that I could not agree more with. You know, it is also very helpful that in your book, which, you know, men and women can easily read in the same, with same passion as I've seen in our group, men read more about all the women too, but women tend to be a little more educated nowadays on the side effects of hormonal, you know, Mm. birth control of hormones in general. I mean, we have hormone-free diets at this point, right? But men are reading more about this thanks to, you know, the fact that you write something about it in your book, you know, warning women about what they're doing to their bodies by considering, considering themselves that way. But what I 
like also about what you wrote is that, again, could not agree more, is that we, both men and women, and not just women, perceive ourselves and think of ourselves as sterile beings, as, you know, being very Cartesian somehow, as this souls that float in the universe. We might have friendships, we might have relationships, we might have sexual intercourse, but reproduction is a choice. It's like, Mm -hmm. it's just something that we might decide to become less sterile if we want to, which I find it, and I, I don't know if you agree with me, but I find it extremely sad, including from the man's perspective. I know that there are all these ways to make men, you know, embrace the virtues of masculinity. So I would ask is like, isn't part of this knowing that they're not just providers and caretakers and like, but they are generative. Like they could have yes. dozens of kids. Right. Yeah. I mean, the irony is that men are actually fertile all the time. Right. Even though, because they're not the ones that get pregnant, they can kind of think of themselves as, as sterile. Right. I think you said the word generative and this is something I've been thinking about a lot lately, which is that I think our culture has lost a sense of motherhood and fatherhood. And I mean this very broadly. I don't just mean biological motherhood and fatherhood, although definitely it would include that. But I mean this sense of like a woman and a man reaching a kind of maturity and a kind of flourishing to where they get to the point that they can really direct their attention to the flourishing of others. Right. And I I would call that motherhood or fatherhood or maybe female generativity, male generativity, right? That there's this kind of flourishing that you reach. And so I, I've been thinking about like, what if we were to begin to think about our generative potential as a vocation, as actually this calling based on our nature, right? So all women actually are called to be mothers in a particular way that might be lived out spiritually, not biologically. Um, And even a biological mother has to assent to that spiritual motherhood, right? Because it's not enough just to reproduce like an animal, but human motherhood is much more holistic and has so much to do with um, cultivating the person. So I think we just have such impoverished narratives about manhood and womanhood, and we're not called to anything, right? We People talk about toxic masculinity, sometimes toxic femininity, but there's nothing great or positive that we're, we're becoming toward, right? There's nothing that's calling us, right? And I think a lot of this has to do with our neglect of generativity. And so we're, we're kind of just staying in this almost juvenile state, right? Where yeah. we don't become like fully mature men and women, but it's really just kind of about like self-care and pleasure and, you know, meeting my needs right? There's something that's kind of inward facing about yeah. this. So I've been thinking a lot about this idea of generativity as a virtue, actually, and as a kind of way of living out masculinity and femininity in this holistic, both spiritual and corporeal way. Anyway, it's an idea I have. Yeah, no, it's an idea out. that has been discussed in the, you know, in this building at Stomberg Hall at the Austin Institute multiple times, especially in the past years. You know, what you say is also, I think, I would, you know, on your behalf, connect what you just said to the way you describe at the beginning, you know, you talk about Genesis and the creation of man and woman in a relationship and also how the first man falls asleep, is put to sleep to wake up as two, revealing 
the need of each other, but also that we truly exist only in a relationship. And so, yes, I absolutely agree with you that in this self-centered idea that we have of ourselves as men and women, we're actually not truly alive. We're not fully human. Right. Even, and I would say even, you know, Mary Harrington that wrote a book that probably is often now associated with yours, uh, Feminism Against Progress, like she criticizes Again, I agree with her too, the, this new model of the, the tra- what she calls a trad feminist, right? Trad women. And she says, you know, they're doing something that is actually not even real. It's just very performative. So somehow I think that we can be non-generative and still self-centered, including when outwardly living motherhood. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes, exactly. Becoming mothers or becoming wives, just because I know I've read Favale, I know this is the right thing to do, but I actually haven't truly gone out of myself and, you know, broken the walls of like my self-centeredness, my, or my, even my idea. And, And here I would, I would ask you to talk to the philosophers that are listening. You often say that part of the problems you had in not really understanding gender or having confusions as you were studying is, was this confusion between essentialism and existentialism. Mm-hmm. Would you like to say something more? Cause I, I would not do justice to the theme otherwise. Sure. So, I mean, one of the important kind of conceptual moves that happens in the development of gender, I think is the influence of existentialism in the 20th century. So to put it really simply, Essentialism kind of reverses the classical relationship between essence and existence. So in other, in other words, like the whatness of a thing is the essence. And then the fact that that thing is, is a separate thing, right? So for existentialists, existence precedes essence. So in other words, I exist, but what I am is something that I must create, that I must generate myself, right? So there's kind of this there's this reversal of essence and existence. And I think how this plugs into the conversation about gender is maybe you think about it in the relationship between woman and female, right? Which Simone de Beauvoir, who was an existentialist, was very influential in this switch because she talks about one is not born, but rather becomes a woman, right? So there she's kind of saying that to become a woman is not a question of essence or what one is but it's much more a question of what society creates, right? So what is not essential, but is constructed. And that's a very influential idea in feminist theory. And there's something kind of true about it, right? Of course, like when we talk about the ideals or expectations or norms around womanhood, those are greatly shaped by culture. And sometimes they're good. Sometimes they're not, right? We should be able to have the conversation at that level. But I think where feminist theory has maybe thrown the baby out with the bathwater is by saying that woman is nothing more than that, right? So there is no kind of ground of essence, but there simply is just that social construction. And it's an oppressive social construct, right? It's something that we have to dismantle or deconstruct in order to be free. And this creates a real tension in feminist thought because it's very anti-essentialist, like any whiff of essentialism and you're just going to get like, you know, put up against the wall and shot pretty much. Like I remember being like in graduate school doing feminist theory and wanting to kind of say things about women and then being like, oh, but that sounds essentialist. Like I have mm-hmm. to sort of, you know, put a, all these caveats in because you you can't. So there's always this tension 
where it's like, okay, we want to create a movement and even a, a philosophy that's all about women. At the same time, we have to resist any attempts to have anything but a purely nominal definition of what a woman is. Right. And I think I argue in the book that that actually paves the way for our current situation. So ironically, you know, feminist thought has kind of sawed off the branch that it's sitting on. In other words, the idea that woman actually means something that's not purely socially constructed. So, and I will say for the philosophers here, I'm using essentialism. So in feminist thought, essentialism is used really broadly. It's not used in this like fine-tuned Aristotelian sense, right? So we could have a debate about whether, um, you know, about essentialism on Aristotelian terms, whatever. I don't really actually care about that that much. (laughs) But um, what I'm saying here is that even just the idea that there's an intrinsic difference between men and women that is not simply accidental or shaped by society. That's what's considered essentialism in feminist theory. So in that broad sense, I would say we actually need to become essentialist again. We need to be able to say, no, actually there is a stable ground of meaning and there is a difference at the level of nature between men and women. Now, I would want to caveat that so many ways because it's often misinterpreted, but at the same time, I'm like, let's stop being so afraid of any kind of essentialism. Just yeah, the bad also ones. because, I mean, it speaks as, you know, here speaks the lawyer in me. If you want to defend the rights of women, you need to define that, right? As if you want to defend the right of children. Now, okay, we might discuss, you know, what qualifies as a children. I agree with you, you know, yet we have this eternal being mature. So I, I say, you know, I dislike the word young adult because it feels like it starts at 22 and ends at 55, right? It's this eternal <laughs> parenthesis. Yeah. As long as yeah, you're yeah. not married and you don't have kids, you're still a young adult. Right. Yeah, but in the same way, you know, if we were to change the term children and define it, so what would be the rights of children? We would still in an agreement in society to defend this, right? So if we're talking about women, right, and what are their rights? Okay, but what is it that we are defending, right? Right. Because if it is a feeling, we cannot even start the legal discussion, right? We can't defend that. There's no ground for that. It would not be objective. The question I have, so you bring up Simone de Beauvoir, and as you discuss in your book, that's basically the second wave feminism and followed by... Judith Butler. But what I found extremely, I mean, brilliant, really brilliant in what you wrote is like how Simone de Beauvoir is describing the role of man as this ideal thing that they go out and they go to work as if she's only thinking about the journalist, the lawyer and the politician. But then you bring up, yeah, but she's not talking about the guy that is working in a factory. And I would say the reverse side, Simone de Beauvoir is somehow blind to the basically aristocratic gift of like being a mother where you can just, not just, but you can mean when you have the pleasure of taking care of the formation of souls and bodies of these new creatures and they're just listening to everything you say and copying you and like, so why do you think women believe the lies of Simone de Beauvoir even today so strongly, so quickly? That's a good question. Well, I, I don't think she's wrong about everything. In fact, one of her chapters is called, I think, the independent woman or the modern woman or something like that. And in that chapter, she describes, and she's running in 1949, right? But she describes the kind of impossible position of the modern woman who must be at the same time as professionally successful as a man while also holding all these ideals of womanhood simultaneously. So she must, in a sense, be like the perfect man and the perfect woman 
in one, right? And I think that's actually a brilliant critique because I think that is very much still present in our time. But I think her masculine bias really comes through, yeah, in the language about how she talks about women and the kind of verbs that she gives. You know, I, and this is like a very linguistic reading, but it strikes me when I read her description of anything that has to do with femaleness is described in this kind of oppressive, weighty, you know, unpleasant way. Whereas anything that's male is described as like active and energetic. And victorious. You know? and yes, exactly. Yeah. So it seems as though I think she's really deeply internalized that and maybe isn't even, I don't know. That's the thing. It's like, is she aware that she's doing that or is that just kind of coming through? Um, but I think a lot of women, I think our culture still has that kind of implicit, in some ways, implicit bias toward valuing more what is traditionally considered masculine. I think that is shifting in some interesting ways, but we live in a culture now that has really adopted Simone de Beauvoir's framework, especially because what she, in her utopia that she describes at the end, her Marxist utopia, what is required for women to be free is contraception and abortion. In other words, to be free from femaleness, right? Because in her existentialist framework, to be the most human thing you can do is to kind of transcend the facts of your existence with creative action or creative thought, right? So for her, like just, you know, having kids or whatever, that's just, that's just what animals do, right? So there's nothing really valuable about that. But to be a human is to be able to transcend one's animality. And she associates then women kind of with the animal. And because our culture has adopted that, that's what we teach our girls. It's like, oh, you know, don't have kids if you want to be successful. We better put you on the pill. Girls grow up learning to think about, one, not really thinking about their fertility at all except to think about it as a threat, a almost yeah. like an STD, mm-hmm. right? Like, oh, you might get herpes or get pregnant, right? It's like, like getting pregnant is like, you know, an STD. Yeah. Your period, oh, what a drag. Like no one wants a period, right? So everything, um, I would also say that I think a lot of the, the features of femaleness are at odds with a lot of American values, which is about very much about like independence, autonomy, right? Rather than interdependence, and connection and you know these sorts of things. So again, femaleness is is something that's that's seen as implicitly inferior or negative in relation to maleness, which is freer. I mean, some of what you're saying, yeah, I would agree, but I would also say, you know, coming from from Italy, like where fertility is even lower than it is in the United States, there is also something deep in the American spirit that is somehow more attached to a religious view, not necessarily a Christian, yes. but a religious view of the body and of the couple that mm, somehow has not been lost. Because, I mean, you still have some, you know, large families here that you do not see in European countries. So there must be something there also, you know, playing at the same. Yeah. For the yes. rest, or everything else that you said, I completely agree with you. And and also like one thing that I wanted, I wanted to read uh, something very short also that you mentioned on another I mean, it's, it's the same, it's always related, right? The book is all about Jordan and the relationship between the sexes, but it's about online dating in particular. So you're seeing this man and you're basically, I think it's on a plane, you're behind him and like just seeing, you know, like watching the screen and then you write. He poses only on the faces that are young, half his age, pressing a button with his thumb to file those women away for later. I think about each woman as her face flicks by. I think about her desire for love, for companionship, to be seen, to be known, to be looked upon with adoration and respect. What woman, what human 
doesn't want these feelings. We are made for love. That is always what we seek. As I watch this man file through dozens of faces, I feel a slow eruption of rage and disgust in my belly that reaches up into my throat. He's not seeing this woman in person. Okay. A, completely agreed, for sure. B, probably men feel the same way about the degree, earning potential, and for some weird biological reason, how tall they are. They know like these things Mm -hmm. seem to be, you know, the reason for them to be archived. You do write, you know, this is a human feeling. This is not human. So real question. And here I'd love to have a satisfying answer. How should young people date if not online? Oh, gosh. Oh, don't ask me this. I mean, that's what my undergraduates want to hear from you. I know. But here's the problem. Like, the world has changed so much since I last dated. I dated, let's see, I got married in the era of MySpace. Okay. Like that. They don't know know what that is. They don't know what Like, I got married before Facebook even existed. Okay. So, and there were some weird things about dating culture even back then. I guess I would say. I just don't know. I, in other words, like, I don't know if what I'm about to say sounds super naive, but I think you should date. I think you should date. I think going on dates is great. And I think you should date real people, you know? And I, I do think finding people online is a way to to meet people that are outside of your particular circle. And I think there are certain apps, you know, that are, that lean more toward connecting people with long-term relationships, right? So something that has a little more of a holistic sense rather than just like, you know, who do you want to bang tonight? So that I would say definitely avoid those, those kinds of apps, but I don't, I mean, I don't have like great thoughts about this. I just find the whole thing very depressing and befuddling. And I feel like an old person. I must I say, say that, I'm but. grateful that you don't have, you know, serious, because I think that sadly we got to this point and it is inevitable that some use needs to be made. I know, I, I know people that are thinking, you know, how do we develop different Different ways, even online, for people to meet, you know, alternative ways that are not, that are not the apps. I do have a a colleague here at the Institute. So he teaches at Notre Dame. He teaches a class, a theology class called The Nuptial Mystery, and it's about sex, marriage, and dating. And he has this kind of famous assignment where he actually requires his students to go on a date, right? Like that's part of his requirement. And it's, it's, it's an effort to push back against the kind of like, throwaway hookup culture, you know, where you're, you you shop for people like you shop for clothes. So there's something to that, right? There's something to actually like, let's kind of revert back to this person-centered, you know, kind of way of of interacting. Yeah, but there's also, you know, talking in Christian terms, if you want, but even teleological, not even Christian, there's something about the way life is supposed to surprise you, right? And, And to be there without you choosing it first. That probably, I think that anthropologically, that is honestly the problem that I see in a dating that occurs through a choice that is made online, right? And being blind to the person that is sitting next to you in class, right? Can you just wake up and during the day as you walk by as, now we have a lot of, we're not going to be able to solve the, you know, to answer maybe this question fully, but I'm glad that you actually do not have, you know, the immediate answer because this this topic is actually much more complicated and you cannot just have a straight answer. It's like, oh, you should not be on it, you know, just delete it no. immediately because that's the system you're, you're working with right now, right? So it's like being an anti-capitalist right. and deciding, okay, you're not going to recognize anyone else's private property. I mean, that's, you can't do that. Right. And, you know, and this is not dating specific, but there are a lot of friendships and really fruitful collaborations that I've developed 
through technology, through meeting people that aren't in my circle, like who I, who without technology, I would not really be able to, to collaborate. Including with. this Zoom. Uh, yeah, exactly. Oh, right. right. Yeah. <laughs> That's what we're doing right now. Yeah. So I'm not, I'm not just like a Luddite over here, but there is something it's, in some ways, it's not even just the technology, it's the consumerism. Like that's what it is. It's not just so much that like you're meeting people on an app. It's that the app is designed to have you view and interact with people in a consumeristic way, in a consumption-based way, right? The swipe right, swipe left kind of thing. And as you objectify the other, you are inevitably giving your your brain the knowledge that you are an object yourself. And there's something less than human about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or that you're an animal, maybe is what I would say. Like, it's not even just so much that you're an object. It's like, you're just a creature of instinct. You know, you're just ruled by your basic animal nature. And so there is something subhuman about it, right? There's some kind of like inhibiting of human flourishing because what it is to be uniquely human is to be able to exercise our reason and our will to not simply be creatures of instinct. Okay. I have other, you know, there's a list of things that we could discuss. You have a beautiful description of like, you talk about freedom and the teleological, you know, meaning of our, of our lives, of our bodies and what freedom should be, what it is today. You write a lot also, and uh, we're not going to be able to cover this, but the good news is there's a book out there. They can buy it, right? They can read it. So we don't need, we don't need to rediscuss everything you say. You talk a lot about transgenderism. You talk about detransitioning and you talk about the true hardships that that involves. You you talk about pornography and you also say, you know, it's not surprising that women are choosing to transition more than men if the image of what a woman is is what is today portrayed in pornography. Yeah. So here's something that I would actually maybe if I were writing the book right now. Yeah. I would I, I might even I would expand on this differently. So when I was writing this book, it was kind of when the first big wave of detransitioners started coming out of the woodwork and they were almost all female. And then there was later a kind of a second wave of detransitioners that were mostly men. And so then this was kind of after I'd finished writing the book. So I couldn't really include this, but it's been interesting to see and hear people talk about the experience of transition and detransition, as it turns out, tends to be kind of sex specific, (laughs) right? Like it's, there are different reasons why women are drawn to it and they have different experiences when they come out of it and vice versa. And so I think, yes, I think the, I think the influence of porn affects both sexes, but a little bit differently. I honestly think that the ideal that we have now of masculinity and femininity is more shaped by porn than anything else. And so it gives us this narrative of men as predatory, right? Men as, you know, toxic, this toxic masculinity and then women as victims or objects or kind of dehumanized subhuman things to be used. Now, both of those things, both of those narratives are, I think, are at play in young people fleeing from becoming men and becoming women, right? Because I've heard multiple times narratives of young men who are like, you know, the vision of manhood that I was given was repulsive Mm -hmm. and I don't want to be that, right? So it's much better to be a woman than to become up to be a predator, right? And they kind of described like when I started to go through puberty, it was like my body was becoming the body of a predator, you know? And of course, like, I don't actually think most men are predatory. Yeah. Like I've, I have had such positive 
male figures in my life. Like, honestly, I've been more traumatized by women than I have been. But at the same time, I think because we have this narrative, especially that we can see, I think, most starkly in pornography, that men are predators and women are victims. For the parents that are listening, you know, there is a, it's clear and clear how parents are models. And so, you know, the way you've seen motherhood, the way you've seen fatherhood is going to affect a lot what you think of like, how you see God, how you understand relationships, like everything basically in your life. And so for the parents listening, if you, if they recall and read again what the statistics are of how prevalent pornography is in their life, their children, they should not be surprised if, as you say, reaching puberty, they do not want to embrace whatever it is that their body are becoming, right? Because this is the model that they're seeing. And there is no alternative model of relationship that is portrayed. Like we don't even have a positive, I don't know if this is the, this is part of the puritanical or work-centered word in which we live. I don't know. But the the one and only example of relationships, men and women that we see, you know, involving sexual intercourse. You don't see Someone, a professor made me notice recently, it's like, you don't see people holding hands. You don't see couple mm-hmm. holding hands. Right. Right. Yeah. I don't think it's like the only one, but it's such a prominent one. And it's also so exaggerated, right? Pornography is, is like so intense, like the, what it's portrayed, right? It's kind of, it's, um, I think, especially if a young person is exposed to it at a young age, it can be very damaging. Yeah. But you're right. We don't just need to try to protect our kids from that narrative. We actually need to offer them something positive and call them towards that. And I, again, don't have some easy solution to that, but I also think about the loss of rites of passage in our culture, right? There's, you talked about this kind of expansive, like young adult phase, which almost seems to have just swallowed up adulthood, Yeah. right? Well, like at what point, like, what does it mean to become a man? And at what point does one achieve that? Or what does it mean to become a woman? And at what point does one achieve that? Like, I think we need to have a rearticulation of that. Again, in something that's positive, that calls us towards something. I don't know if you would agree with me on this. I know you mentioned, you do mention as, uh, you see a correlation between the spread of like the, the transitioning idea among girls and the contag- social contagion and that front, the rapid onset gender dysphoria and what anorexia was years ago. But I don't know if, here if you would agree with me in inviting the girls to consider their bodies as fertile as you do in the final chapter where you admit that being pregnant is not, or after after giving birth, you don't recognize your body as what the culture wants your body to be. And so that there is a problem we women have with fertility, not only by adhering to the contraceptive mentality yet, but also by thinking that our bodies are okay only if thin, fit, athletic, usually, which are usually by definition sterile bodies because most athletes do not have periods. Yeah, that's a really good point. Was it a realization, like, was it a sudden realization for you in like seeing your body that you were part of that same narrative, like in not accepting you know, your post-pregnancy look. I mean, you right. look absolutely great, by the way, for those that are not watching, like, you're a very beautiful woman. And that's an objective truth I'm saying. But like, do you think that somehow we've all been, as girls, just convinced of this need to conform to the sterile body 
image. Oh yeah, absolutely. And I think another problem in our that's particular to our culture is that we are confronted with images of ourselves and other people in ways that are just completely unprecedented. Like I, I honestly would state it as strongly as I don't, our brains are not equipped to handle this, right? Like our brains evolved over a long period of time to respond a certain way to images of people and of ourselves, right? Um, but now we're just confronted with it all the time. And it's even more so than when I grew up. Um, so it's changing. It's changing so rapidly. So there's a there's so much of a preoccupation on how one appears and how one looks. And, and the images we're given are actually pretty homogenous. Like even if you have, you know, you have kind of these, if you look at ads, it's like, okay, there's some racial diversity, but guess what? They're all size four. Yeah. You know, like, guess what? Yeah. They all have this, you know, there are some exceptions, right? There are some companies that are trying to vary things like Target, for example, I was in Target the other day and, you know, they have a lot of different kinds of bodies all over the place, but still it's like, it's even that is still relying upon this like kind of constant comparison. Like, you know, I, I think in the book I mentioned, like just going to mass and thinking about how for most of human history, the, the examples of womanhood that people saw were just what whatever was in their village. You know, and so you think about like if I go to mass mass at my local parish and I look around, it's like for most of human history, this is what I would think of as womanhood. And you see all kinds of different female bodies, right? You see like really tall ones, short ones, big ones, big boobs, tiny boobs, you know, like some kind of butch looking women, super femme looking women. Like there's just this, there's this variety that you see in any kind of like grab of a local community that is completely lost in mass media. But it's it's mass media that forms our ideals. And I think that is a huge problem. And it's even like, you know, way, way worse now with social media because now it's not just, oh, there's Sydney Crawford up there and I feel bad because I don't look like her. It's like, oh, here's this airbrushed version of myself that I made that I don't look like. We also compare ourselves, you know, ageless, like there's this ageless yeah. comparison. So, you know, you're 65 and you're comparing yourself to the 35 years old and you're, you know, yeah. you can't not wear hair jeans. And, you know, why is that, you know? Yeah. Well, right. I mean, I think we could keep going for hours and I'm very glad to know that you're going to be coming in November so that I will kidnap you and try to talk <laughs> to talk more. So I'm also encouraging, you know, our audience to look at, the, at our website and register for when you're in town. But until then, is there any book, article, author that you would recommend to our audience, including, I would say, especially to those in our audience that are non-convinced that there is a nature that determines hmm. who we are? Like, yeah. Oh, that's interesting. I don't know. Nothing's coming to mind like immediately on that front. But although I was thinking before when you said a book, I think there is a book, and this is from a non-religious perspective, right? But Louise Perry's book, The Case Against the Sexual Revolution, right? So she makes a, a lot of the same arguments that I make and she does, I think, actually, it's interesting because she said that her most controversial chapter, because all her titles are kind of, they're hot button a little bit, all her chapter titles. But the one that got the most controversy was the chapter that she says the title is Men and Women Are Different, right? Which is so funny because, you know, you would think that some of her other topics, like not all desires are good is another one of her chapter titles, right? So she gets into this in a way that I think connects with, I guess, this contemporary moment and the angst yeah. that young, the thing is that the young women, the women feel the angst, 
You know, the young people feel the angst. Like there's something funky in our culture right now around sex and dating and the relationships between men and women. Like all is not well here. And she, I think, diagnoses it really well. So that's probably the book I'd recommend. Of course, I recommend to all our audience to get your book and read it if they still haven't. And if I may, I'd probably add to the list... Mary Harrington, or mm-hmm. just listening to some of the interviews she recently gave about her yes. book, where, where, you know, most of the things are there and are discussed. And thankfully, there are a lot of scholars that are writing about this. Also, you know, it's not, it didn't come out yesterday, but Professor Regnera's Cheap Sax is a book mm-hmm. that I keep recommending to all my yes, me too. friends who are not, you know, in, not in the yeah. least religious, that don't value their body, but just telling them, well, you want to get married, you know, it might be you know, attentive of how the market works in this area. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anyway, uh, Abigail, I'm so thankful for this amazing conversation and time we had together. And again, I can't wait to have you here. So thank you again. And I look forward yeah. to having you in person. Yeah. See you in November. My birthday is right around that time too. So you'll have to take me out for a drink. I'm celebrate sh- my birthday. You know, it's going to be my 40th birthday. It's a, that's <laughs> November a thing. 17th. Okay, great. So wonderful. You'll have a great time then. Oh, wait. So you're <laughs> spending that evening here, right? Because you're uh, the 16th. I'm there. So it's the day before. Yeah. Well, the vigil. Birthday. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Perfect. The vigil of the my vigil of your fr- yes. Well, it's going to be a great celebration, <laughs> I promise. And I'm sure the young professionals will help me make that happen in the best okay. possible way. <laughs> All right. Thank awesome. you again. All right. Thank you. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you enjoyed this episode of our show, What We Can't Not Talk About. If you like this episode, remember to share it among your friends, subscribe to our channel, and if you can, please donate to the Austin Institute. With your support, we can continue to do this, we can continue our programming, and of course, we will continue to support the research of our fellows. Thank you.